Here we are at our last session of this path, this year-long path for some of you, for some of you, the retreat. And I'm feeling a lot of gratitude for our experience together and for everything that we have touched into trusted each other with, begun to consider. Uh, we'll take some time to, to reflect together. Um, and in the time that we have, as I mentioned, I'd love to just think together about some of the, the healing methods that we have in these incredibly rich, multifaceted traditions. And so before, before we uh, have a break and before we have our closing circle, I wanted to just take a little bit of time to explore with you what some of the primary methods are on both the psychotherapeutic path and the Buddhist spiritual path. And to see, you know, to see if there are any questions about how effective these methods are, or how to work with them, what could, what could change, etc. And so, since we were talking about psychotherapy uh, yesterday afternoon, we're going to start there. And I opted to, to begin with an upaya, a skillful means. Right? There are the the six primary skillful means that, or perfections that allow us to really work very deeply with the mind and heart. And they are enormously helpful in the psychotherapeutic path. And the first one is patience, which as we've discussed is, is usually translated as tolerance which is interesting because patience can sound like the ability to wait for something to happen, right? To wait for better conditions, right? to wait for what we're longing for all these years. But really it's about the capacity to, to bear with our experience. And this is of course essential for psychotherapeutic treatment because healing typically is a slow process. Not always, but, but usually it is, given the, com the complexity of what we're dealing with, all of the layers of our particular struggles. So for both therapist and patient, the ability to cultivate that tolerance will protect the treatment, right? It, it creates a sturdy enough container so that if there are challenges in the relationship or there are unforeseen challenges in somebody's life, this can be true for both the therapist and the patient, right? When there's that tolerance on board, then there's enough give to allow for these struggles, setbacks, difficulties. 
Yeah. And so certainly when the therapist can really be committed to cultivating patience, right? This really does require a commitment, right? Not just a hope that it will come on board or some relief when we're able to access it, but a kind of clinical vow. I, I will cultivate patience on behalf of the healing of everyone I work with and my own healing. This, this is an area where some, you know, some feel for spirituality is so helpful clinically because it is often just assumed that clinicians will be able to cultivate patients. Right? Rather than to really feel into how, how essential it is that it's got an ethical foundation. Right? Patience. So the next point um, could, be, could be another retreat, <laughs> which is exploring a patient's relationship to imagery. This has something to do with respect for the psyche, right? respect for the unconscious. And this came up when we talked a little bit about dreams. Right? This is also relevant to fantasies, to longing. It usually comes with an image of what's longed for. Right? Sometimes people will talk about a cabin in the woods where they know they can go, where it's peaceful, right? or a community that's close by. Of course, there's a concept, but there's also an image. Right. And so this is one way of just appreciating that we are both conscious creatures and discursive creatures as well as unconscious creatures. And in the same way, the breath is a meeting point between mind and body, or you could think of it as a meeting point between the conscious and the unconscious, so too is imagery. Right? It's, it's a bridge between these realms. Yeah. And it's one reason why we work with imagery in, in our Buddhist practice because the historical Buddha was, I think, one of our original clinicians, one of our original psychologists who understood we are imaginal. And that is the original language of the psyche. Right? Before, before we're particularly verbal or articulate, before we have comfort talking about our experience, we have a lot of images that arise, right? which is why infants need a lot of care, <laughs> because they're having very rich imaginal experience for very young children. This is, of course, always true for us. Right. And so in psychotherapy, we can be curious about what people are thinking, what they want to reflect upon, but also how it manifests 
on an imaginal level. Yeah. And that takes us to the next point, that curiosity and reflection are, are really our, our primary blessings and psychotherapeutic treatment for both people in the clinical dyad. Right? When, when we're curious, the mind is relatively open. You, you know what that feels like when you're hearing about something and you perk up a little bit and you want to hear more. Oh, really? That happened? So then what happened? Or somebody's talking about, it can be a novel or a play that they saw that really grabbed them. And it, it inspires that openness in you. This is the stance of receptivity that Martha was, was noting yesterday. And when we're in that receptive place, then we're conveying to another human being, my mind is here for your mind. Right? My mind is spacious, a little bit like this gorgeous, <laughs> open, spacious environment. Often, I, I know when I come to BCBS, <sighs> I just have this sense that whatever's going on for me is welcome here. I don't, have to, I don't have to manage myself in the same way that I might when I'm trying to navigate life in New York City. We can do something similar with the mind. Just be, be a symbolic retreat center for another human being. And if we do that with our mind, which is challenging depending on what's going on in a particular relationship, then we are supporting another human being and really actively nurturing their ability to be reflective. Right? I mean, this is, this is a through line in psychotherapeutic theory and perspective, that reflective function has, has ultimate healing properties. And there's a similar idea in Buddhist psychology that <clears throat> mindfulness has ultimate healing properties. Right? That when we can use the mind a little bit like a retreat center, whoever you are, whatever's going on, you're welcome here. Right? Susie was saying, we've we just, we want to we invite people in. When we can use the mind similarly, it allows us to do what Mark Nepo was describing in those powerful pages. I am present. I am allowing for the full spectrum of experience rather than swatting away what doesn't feel good, which is, of course, a human response to what doesn't feel good. This is what I've been hoping to emphasize throughout our retreat. There's no shame in that. There are times when that feels like the necessary response. But if we can interrupt the pattern so that we're not always defaulting to that state of trying to get distance and shutting the mind down from what we have not longed for, 
right, from what causes us yet more frustration or disappointment. And similarly, if we can just notice how we might get too hooked with what seems to help us feel aligned, right, cared for, and an optimal state, then we're, we're in a better position to really stay present for our own life, for the life of whomever we're trying to care for. Right. Curiosity and reflection. They sound like such benign abilities, but they really are life-changing. Yeah, you, you might have memories. I, I have memories of particularly difficult experiences where I really struggled to sustain that, ref, that reflective, curious stance. And it set things on a whole different course as a result, right? There were all the proverbial ripple effects, the karmic ripple effects of contracting and withdrawing and conveying this is, this is not acceptable. And so for me that has something to do with the regret <laughs> of when I've been unable to sustain that genuinely open, reflective stance. Of course, the beauty of regret is that if we notice that, we can protect ourselves, I can protect myself from future regrets. I, I vow to do everything I can to sustain that receptivity so that whatever it is I'm dealing with moving forward can be greeted with that spacious, curious mind. So I've, I've referenced this a number of times, but this is, of course, also connected to being who we are, being authentic. This doesn't mean that we're always in a state of genuine uh, steadiness where feelings are not running high. That's just, I think that's a fantasy, <laughs> right? As, as we know, when we're going through an experience, and this is true clinically, this is true personally, but to bring it back to the therapeutic process, if something is happening in a treatment, we want to we greet it authentically with who we are. And so each one of us, you know, if you're in a mentoring role, needs to find ways to stay receptive and curious that also feels real. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's so important because if, if it's a simulation of receptivity, then that's going to be felt by the patient or the client, right? We all know, we all know on a body level, on a nervous system level, whether someone is genuinely there for us, right? 
And this is why being who we are, being authentic in a, in a mentoring role is, is so important. And of course, we're going to talk about being who we are on a spiritual path, too. But when we're trying to show up for another human being, we do have to, to bring the truth of our, our personality, our character, our history to the encounter. Yeah. Okay. So these next few points, risking more exposure. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to orient a little bit toward the patient or client, but this is, of course, also equally true for the therapist. That part of what we're trying to do in, in psychotherapeutic healing is to create an environment where it really is safe enough to reveal more about what's felt, what's genuinely felt. It's for this reason that now there's the cliche of the therapist asking the patient, and how do you feel about that? It can get, it can get a little repetitive, <laughs> can get a little silly at times, but the intention is a noble one. Right. Since many of us have learned that certain feelings are acceptable, other feelings are moderately acceptable, and other feelings are patently unacceptable. And most of us get a lot of conditioning around affect. Right? We, we explored this more in the last retreat. But there's an opportunity in psychotherapy to really hold the space so that what is there can be felt directly. This is the key. This is what Mark is getting at in his chapter. Can you stay with directly and make contact with whatever's arising emotionally and not, as the patient, have to manage that experience or protect the therapist from it, but to feel it? to know it's there, to begin to express what's there. And if what's felt is not wanted, right? this is often true, it's probably true for every human being. In my, in my experience, this is something I've noticed with people who are genuinely compassionate and really drawn to, to spiritual practice. If disgust is arising, if hatred is arising, right? if a feeling of being fed up is arising, often there is a critical part or the superego comes in to say, not that. Why can't I, why can't I ride, ride the waves of this? But there is nobility in being with the truth of what's felt. And in psychotherapy, what can happen is we start to de-link what arises emotionally from what gets enacted Right? Freud wrote about this, that it's, it's tough to, to uncouple 
what's felt from what is enacted, which is why often there's guilt about what comes up emotionally. But it's one thing to feel hatred or disgust. It's another thing to enact it in ways that are harmful to oneself and others. But to refer to Winnicott's famous line, knowing we hate makes us more responsible. All right, so it's a little bit of a Zen koan, but it's a very helpful koan, right? Consciously grappling with what is felt, whatever the feeling is, is actually protective against enacting it in ways that are going to cause harm. It's very obvious to many of you, and you've thought about this over time, but I find it helpful to just touch back into, in the spirit of really holding that roomy container for whomever comes into therapy. There is nobility in knowing what you feel. Yeah. Okay, so just a few more points, and then I'll pause for some questions. This is also obviously true of any, any beliefs or behaviors that cause shame or embarrassment or humiliation. Psychotherapy can be a place where people access compassion for the first time, where the very things that have felt too shameful ever to openly expose can come into view, right? Yes, this problem is still here, <laughs> right? This difficulty has, hasn't seemed to budge. It's okay, right? We can explore it together. The psyche has its own timeline. Nothing is too shameful right, to, to be reflected upon. Yeah. Interestingly, when that, when that gets conveyed, that everything is, is welcomed here, again, a little bit like a retreat center, right? All parts of who we are get to come in and be cared for. Then it's not only the struggles, the addictions, the unresolved or seemingly insoluble problems that, that get airtime, it's also feelings of love, affection, right? All of the, the warmth that many people learn to safeguard, right? I mean, it's not uncommon, depending on somebody's family system or you know, culture or combo, to, to have learned to try to tamp down feelings of love and affection and warmth, right? Maybe to translate them into being nice or being respectful or kind. But when people get close and they work through enormous difficulties together, they withstand the, the twists and turns of life and death, love is going to get stirred. 
hopefully for both people, right? And so ideally psychotherapy can be a place where it becomes safe enough to feel it and to express it with needed boundaries, right? This doesn't mean that it's an invitation for enmeshment. It doesn't mean that somebody has to become the omniscient maternal provider, right? Or the good patient who doesn't burden the therapist. It just means that the arising of love can be felt and safely expressed. I think we do need to have a retreat on love. <laughs> Thank you, Scobie. Hmm? A retreat on love. Okay, we're we're gonna do it. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. No, we've. We've come up with this together, so we're going to go there. We're going to go to the complexities of love. So for these last few points, allowing healing to come in unexpected ways, this is something that I began to consider uh, with one of my primary mentors, Anne Yulinov, who's a great Jungian scholar. who's also, in my experience, a a true psychoanalytic mystic. Um, Healing is not usually a linear process. We can do our very best to try to identify the conditions that help us move toward healing. And for therapists, this is important to carefully think about how how do we want to work What do we want to orient toward? How do we want to continue to grow and change in order to be of greater benefit? But it's equally helpful to tap into the humility of not knowing. What is it that's going to help somebody really begin to unburden themselves to experience more freedom psychologically and spiritually? What is it that's going to help a treatment deepen and take root in the psyche of both people? We can't know. We can can make efforts. Right to, to stay curious, but ultimately we're, we're both in a, a humble, vulnerable position. Yeah. And sometimes that, that humility, that receptivity, really allows for a sense of wonder to come in, rather than frustration that our methods of choice are not necessarily enough. Because every, every mentor has their methods of choice, their theories of choice. And sometimes they're exactly what's needed and sometimes they aren't. And so we can be humble together and then just see what is it 
that comes in to awaken the mind and the heart. Yeah. Appreciating the somatic realm and the body's relationship to healing. This is something that over time I've really come to appreciate more. Psychotherapy has um, historically, traditionally been a relatively disembodied method, right? which has been a, a problem for both people in the endeavor. Um, it's been a method that has really oriented toward the mind. And in this way, the original psychotherapists and the original Buddhists had some common ground. They, they all felt that the mind is ultimate, right? But the mind exists because we are embodied. We, we cannot separate out mind and body, as you all know. And so over time, Right. Psychotherapists, the vast majority, have come to understand and appreciate that in order to free the mind, we also need to work with the body. We need to appreciate how the mind manifests somatically. And the original therapists encouraged us to be curious about that. It's just that the method for working with that curiosity was much murkier than it is now. Over time, there were additional methods to help us understand that our, our nervous system, our autonomic nervous system, right, is what gets originally activated by our experience in life, and the mind follows. Right? So there's this notion that we have the body state first, and then the story. It's just that most of us are conscious of the story and remain relatively unconscious of what's happening in the body. And so it's possible to work bi-directionally, right? Because if we work just with the nervous system, we might miss some of the complexity going on in the mind. If we, if we orient primarily toward the mind, we're likely to miss what's happening somatically. And so in order to continue healing, we, we do need to notice how mind and body work together. We also just, I think as therapists or people in mentoring roles, we need to, to be curious about how people are in relationship to their body. Right. How are they caring for the body or not? Right. So to not ignore how people sleep, right? the food they take in, the substances, alcohol, how much, why, when. Right. And again, without any shame, without any humiliation, but in the spirit of orienting toward healing and freedom. Yeah. So lastly, 
trusting the psyche and its push for healing. This, this is a biggie. Right. And this, this point is largely influenced by Jung and depth psychology. Jung, Jung had a profound respect for the psyche, that it is seeking ways to work through all feelings of deadness, psychic deadness, right? loss of vitality, feelings of deficiency, right? feelings of being too limited or not having enough, that the psyche is always working to try to claim more of who we are and to claim more of what we're influenced by. And this is really good news, right? And, and if some trust in this can be cultivated, it's very helpful because some of our struggles are tenacious. <laughs> right? You may have noticed that there are certain struggles that really dig their heels in. And despite a whole lot of curiosity and efforts at healing and lots of work, they seem to hang around. Right? That's OK. It just means that there is something very complex that is probably layered with a lot of personal meaning, a lot of cultural meaning, right? a lot of familial meaning. Just, it's, it's a little bit like trying to figure out what's happening in a structure. right? If we heard a weird noise in the Dharma Hall, you know, we might start looking around in the obvious places. But then if we couldn't quite identify it, it would start to take some time to go into the foundation. It would mean we'd have to open up something that seems structural and preventative in terms of accessing the source. And as a result, it would take longer. <laughs> if we heard a buzz and it was coming from the air purifier, fine, simple, done. Right? But we all know sometimes it's not like that intrapsychically. Something is going on. We are intellectually very aware of it. We might have written about it. <laughs> we might have unpacked it analytically. Right? We might have an airtight case for the causes, but still the experience is there. And so we can just really appreciate that the psyche wants us to, to stay curious about the underlying causes that might be very well camouflaged. And we might need to get some tools to open up a plank. Right? We might need to go into the deeper layers of the structure. And there might be a lot of resistance to doing that because, I mean, if we started to do it here in this beautiful Dharma hall, we'd be thinking, eh, we're going to mess things up. Everything looks lovely. Why, why go there? <laughs> what if we can't find 
the wood to replace the wood so that everything looks good. I mean, there are a lot of risks when we, when we do that deeper work, but it's what the psyche wants us to do. Right? To, to risk the messiness and then to be able to access those underlying deeper layers that might be generating our, our suffering, our frustration in the service of feeling, feeling that we are more of who we are, of claiming more of our capacities. It has occurred to me over time that this is a primary source of psychological suffering when we feel that there are aspects of who we are that remain split off, sensed in a haunting way, in a deeply frustrating, nagging way, but not accessed. The good news is the psyche is on board for us to do that work, to bring into closer contact the parts that tend to be, be present for how we navigate life and our sense of who we are and the aspects of who we are that have been a little bit too camouflaged. Right? Yeah. We won't obviously be able to touch on every point when we're thinking about healing on both the Buddhist and therapeutic path. But maybe I can sum it up by suggesting that both traditions make efforts in different ways at helping us open up, utilize our natural resources of curiosity and reflective function in order to navigate our experience and the many twists and turns of our experience not just so that we have more insight. (laughs) Insight is terrific and beneficial, but the insight alone is not enough. Really what we're going for is the felt experience that we, we do not exist in a radically isolated way. We might feel that we do. We might have come to believe that we do for protective reasons. But in both traditions, there are efforts to help us restore, again, a felt visceral awareness of the truth of who we are, which is relationally embedded. Right In the psychotherapeutic tradition, Therapists are really encouraged to appreciate how we develop within the context of relationship. We internalize our caregivers as part of the self. We continue to have interpersonal needs to the last breath and depending on your your beliefs and beyond. 
right? That these relational needs are lifelong, right? They, they do not cease to exist when we reach a certain age. They are simply an indicator of our nature. And in the Dharma, we work with the wisdom teachings in order to radically challenge that sense that we exist in some way that is fundamentally separate from others, unbridgeable from others. That that feeling causes so much pain and suffering. It's It's probably the primary source of our suffering, right? Because when we're going through something that breaks us apart, if we also feel radically separate, it will not be tolerable. Thank you, Aura, for helping us really feel into that. We need to feel that we are part of this human family in order to get through this life and in order to recover slowly from our pain, right? And so both traditions are encouraging us to be patient, determined, (laughs) steadfast in our efforts to really feel into our relational nature, right? so that we have a much better chance of also noticing are there ways in which we chronically devalue ourselves? And I have a a reference here to low self-esteem. Are there ways in which there's some narrative or there's some feeling of deficiency, right, and therefore not deserving to be part of the human family, totally relationally embedded, safely dependent upon others. And if that is so, does it look like low self-esteem? Does it look like we diminish ourselves? Or does it look like grandiosity, better than, which is just code for separate from? Right, And in both traditions, there is deep appreciation for how any, any effort to reinforce that separateness, either through you know, the, the feeling of low, the conscious feeling of not being enough, or the conscious feeling of being better than and therefore frustrated with everybody else's limitation, Right? These are just ways of not risking the truth of our relational embeddedness, our vulnerability. And that if we can engage that friendly curiosity again and again, even if it's about our low self-esteem, <laughs> here again, huh? feeling like I didn't get it right, Whatever, whatever the narrative is, then there's opportunity right, for a reset, 
there's opportunity for restored truth to come on board. Right? That we are all endowed with precious human life. This, this is the Buddha's message. And to me, it rings true. Of course, people will cause us enormous pain and frustration, and we will cause other people enormous pain and frustration. And that needs to be addressed and explored. But it does not diminish the truth of how precious we are and how essential we are to the whole family system. And so if we can keep tapping back into that awareness and keep revisiting the trust that whatever our particular struggle is, whatever our personal obstacles are, they can be worked with, right? They can shift. Our relationship to them can change so significantly that they feel worked through. They, they, may, they may get stirred. They may get activated, but they really feel worked through because we're no longer in relationship to them in ways that cause so much suffering. Then we have a really good chance of living into the experience of genuine well-being and healing. <laughs>